yes, good morning. Welcome, church. Uh, good to see you all again, such as it is. And of course, Lord willing, next week we can all return to meeting together properly as a church. And, and barring another uh, corona wave, uh, we can continue to do so. So I would, I would strongly encourage you to come along and join in. Um, I know that uh, some of the churches we've been in contact with, uh, they're wrestling with people not wanting to return. But, but getting together is important. To be a Christian is to be part of the gathered people. Um, but uh, you know, for, for, for a variety of reasons, some of us can't gather, some of us um, for illnesses and other, other reasons just can't get to church on a Sunday morning. And that's where I guess church over the internet has actually been a bit of a blessing for people. Um, it's given them an opportunity to, to at least watch a church service from start to finish, even if not properly join in. But that's the exception, not the rule. Um, uh, yeah, so, so, yep, come along next week. It'd be great to see you all again. Um, before I start, hopefully uh, I was organised and getting the outline and all the Bible texts uh, to Bertie to be able to put into the newsletter. Um, so assuming they're there in front of you, as you can see, we've got a lot to get through with several passages we'll be looking at. So before we go any further, can I uh, strongly suggest you grab your Bibles so you can read along and yeah, keep up with, with my mad ramblings. But uh, I'll be quickly running through some initial passages, but slowing down as we move along. So let's begin. So, so having just seen the US elections and the ongoing disputes about uh, cheating and who did what, and I'm not certainly not taking any sides in what I'm saying here, but um, have you noticed that, that Joe Biden, he keeps promising to fix all the problems that were caused by Donald Trump? When Trump got in, that was to make America great again, to fix the problems caused by Obama. Obama got in, if you remember, on the simple promise of hope. He was going to fix the problems um, that have been caused by Bush and, and other um, preceding presidents, and so on it goes. And here in Australia, of course, we're no different. Each election cycle, both Labor and the Liberals try to outdo each other in promising to fix the problems of the country. Um, so we see the promise, all the politicians promising a better world and a better future. But for all of the elections, all of the promises, all of the taxpayers' money spent, all the billions and billions spent, um, that better world, that utopia, that better future is always in the future. We can never seem to make it happen. When we do fix one problem, we simply create three more. And there are plenty of examples we could talk about. But it still seems to be built into us. Whatever your political persuasion or your beliefs, all of us are longing for a better tomorrow. All of us realise that the world we live in is not as good as it, was, as it was meant to be. So over the next two weeks, we're going to be doing a couple of Advent sermons. Now, Advent is simply to wait in expectation for something. So some will wait for the advent of the politician who will fix the country's problems. Kids will wait for the advent of Christmas morning and Santa. Some strange people will even wait for the advent of the new iPhone. But here, of course, we'll, we will be talking about the advent of the Christ. And with that, the promise of the ultimate world that we are blessed by God, ruled by God, and under peace, by, um, at peace under God. So let's start at the beginning, because that's always a good place to start. So Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. And so God created man in his own image. 
In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God's creation was initially perfect. Mankind was created in God's image and we were to rule under him. Uh, they were to have dominion over the created world. Dominion can have some ne negative connotations for some people, but the key word here, I think, is responsibility and, and that to God. We were to be responsible to look after the world and to live life under the Lord God, our King. As Ian Hart puts it, exercising royal dominion over the earth as God's representative is the basic purpose for which God created man. Man is, anointed, man is appointed king over creation, responsible to God, the ultimate king. However, as we know, into the perfect world came an alien intruder who questioned the truth of God's words. Genesis 3.1 The serpent asked the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Once they had swallowed the seeds of doubt, as we know, Eve ate the fruit and so too did Adam who was with her. So the creation order is overturned. It's meant to be God, man, woman, creature. But here we have the creature, man, woman, and then God. So falling for the lies of the serpent, Adam and Eve's rebellion against God brought God's curse upon the earth. The original humans forfeited the just rule of God and came under the rule of a beast over whom they were created to reign. But right at the beginning, God hints at the method that he will use to restore his, to restore his blessing to his fallen creation. So Genesis 3, 14 and 15. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. And you, sh and you shall bruise his heel. I've heard those who say that rather than divide the Bible into an Old and New Testament, the Bible should be divided into creation and fall, so Genesis 1 to this passage, Genesis 3.15, um, a little bit like a First Testament, um, and then recreation or restoration being Genesis 3.16 to the end of Revelation. Um, the point being that this promise in Genesis 3.15 is what we see unfolding through the rest of the Bible. From here on, we see God working to undo the curse of the fall. The tension through the rest of the New Testament and even into the New Testament, sorry, the tension through the rest of the Old Testament and even into the New Testament is who will be this person who brings this hope to reverse the fall and to restore us to our right relationship to God. So, who will be this person to bruise the serpent's head and end the curse of the fall. We get the first hint in Genesis 12. And I won't read the whole thing, but Genesis 12, 1 to 3 is basically, Now the Lord said to Abram, In all the families of the earth you shall be blessed. Out of all the peoples on earth, the Lord chose one family, Abram, later to be, to be renamed Abraham. We don't have time to go into any more depth this morning. But the answer to our question, as the, the person to bruise the serpent's head and end the curse, uh, we know that they will be a descendant of Abraham. This was not in anything that Abraham had done, but was simply God choosing to bless humanity um, and make his promise to Abraham and through him and through Abraham. But as, of course, as Abraham's descendants grow in number, becoming 12 tribes and then numbering in the millions, we need to be more specific. 
So the promised one will, the promised one we're waiting for, this person will come from Abraham. But this needs to be narrowed down further. So what, so what we will look at is that this person will be a ruler from the tribe of Judah. Judah. So flick over to Genesis 49. So if you remember, Genesis 49, uh, we have Jacob, um, after facing drought and famine, he's now in the safety of Egypt with his family. He's been reunited with his long-lost son, Joseph. And now, as he sees the end of his life approaching, he's blessing each of his sons. We won't go through them all, but he does bless them in order, with the first three blessings belonging to Reuben, Simeon and Levi being in the form of a discipline. Reuben is firstborn. He singles out the episode in Genesis 35, where just after the death of um, um, Jacob's wife, Rachel, Reuben lays with Rachel's uh, with Jacob's concubine. This seems to have forfeited Reuben's rights to being firstborn. Simeon and Levi, he rebukes them for their violence, their anger, their cruelty. Think of the massacre at Shechem after the treatment of their sister Dinah. And after these blessings regarding um, his older sons, Jacob gets to Judah. Now Judah is not entirely innocent here either. Uh, when Joseph's brothers uh, plot against him and end up selling him into slavery, it was Judah's idea to sell him, to make a profit rather than just kill him. Now, maybe, as some argue, Judah was just simply showing compassion and looking for a way to save uh, Joseph's life. But the text does really suggest that greed was the motivation here. Um, and you've also got that episode in Genesis 38, uh, which is pretty deplorable, um, with the widowed daughter-in-law, uh, Tamar, and, uh, yeah, and Judah's treatment of her. Um, uh, but we must also note that uh, as, as the, 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 the mentioned drought is afflicting um, the family, uh, the brothers go to Egypt to buy food from the governor there, who, who they don't know was Joseph at this stage. Uh, and Joseph tricks them into bringing their youngest brother, Benjamin, along. And in that, Judah offers his own life and his own son as a pledge for Benjamin's safety. So he did seem to have changed. So anyway, the, the point is, when we get to Judah's blessing... Um, it's a much different tone to the first three. So if you've got your Bibles, grab them and, and flick over to Genesis 49. And we'll be reading verses 8 to 12. So Judah. Judah your, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes. And to him belong the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he washed his garments in wine, and his vestures in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine, and his teeth whiter than milk. So here in, in, in verse, well, these verses, Judah is, shall be, or in verse 8 we'll look at, Judah shall be praised by his brothers. This is highly unusual. It's God who is usually, usually the recipient of praise, not man. So for Judah to be praised by this in scripture is unusual and points to something rather extraordinary. And the phrase, your hand will be on the neck of your enemies, this is, this is symbolic of triumph against his enemies. So as a ruler, he will be triumphant and he will conquer and overcome his enemies. And then in the, in, the, in the passage, back to his brothers again, 
they shall praise and bow down before him, just as they had done to their father. So Judah, or from Judah, will be the leader for all the brothers, all the tribes of Israel. Into verse 9, this talk about a lion and a lion's cub. This is likening Judah to a lion defending the prey it's just killed. So the image of this leader is that he'll be fierce and dangerous, powerful and frightening. And this may be the beginning of the phrase, the lion of Judah. But our focus here is on, on verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. Scepter and ruler's staff are symbolic of royal authority. Judah will be the royal tribe, the tribe the kings come from, to have the responsibility to govern and to lead. If you link this in with verse 8 and Judah's brothers bowing down to him, this is undoubtedly, look, undoubtedly looking forward to Judah having leadership, having kingship over all the tribes. Uh, from between his feet, this is a bit of an obscure phrase and it's most likely a reference to his descendants. Um, it seems that feet can be a euphemism for genitals and so if that's correct, between his feet is simply a reference to Judah's children and that they're holding the ongoing position of, nat of national leadership. And, and this next bit also is quite unclear. Depending on the Bible version you'll have, it will read until Shiloh comes, until tribute comes to him, or until he whose right it is comes. A lot depends on how you deal with the word Shiloh in, 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 in the, the original languages. So it can be about bringing peace, bringing tribute, or even something to do with a saviour or, or redeemer. But the general agreement here is that this is looking forward to a future kingship of the Israelite nation and a king that will reign forever, bringing peace. And the last part in verse 10, the obedience of the peoples, notice that people is in plural form. This, re this refers to all people, not just the tribe of Israel. This encompasses all of humanity. And verses 11 and 12, um, so if you were to tie a foal to a choice vine, you'll find the animal will naturally eat the, 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 the vine and the fruit. Um, so here there's so much abundance that we can tie a donkey, a foal to our choicest vine and we don't have to worry about the donkey hoeing in. And also in this text, um, this, this person will be, uh, will be so well off uh, that, that uh, we can wash our clothes in wine instead of water. And verse 12, this might be referring to good looks, or again, it might be talking about an abundance of wine and milk, a bit like a land flowing with milk and honey. But the point is, in these two verses, there's a strong image of abundance, prosperity, and blessing. So from Judah will come the ruler, the king, and he will rule in peace, and there will be abundance for all over the earth. Um, I heard one person describe Genesis 3.15, and Genesis 49.10 as the bookends to Genesis. Uh, we start off being promised the one who will crush the serpent's head. And here from, from 49.10 from Judah, we have the promise of this king bringing peace. So although it's not explicit as such, by bringing peace, here we are starting to look towards the one who will crush the serpent's head and end the curse. But as we move through time and through our Bibles, we find that this king, they're not just from the tribe of Judah, but they're also the descendant of the great king David. Now we're going to flick to 2 Samuel chapter 7, as you'll see from your outline. 
But uh, just very, very roughly and very quickly, uh, the book of 1 Samuel is the establishment of Israel under a monarchy, firstly with Saul and then leading up to David. 2 Samuel deals with the kingdom under David. And chapter 7 of 2 Samuel, which we'll be looking at in part, is seen as a turning point in the history of salvation. Chapter 7 starts with David asking if it's right that he lives in the palace that he's built while the ark still lives in a tent. So David is looking at building a temple for the ark, a temple for God. So through his prophet Nathan, God asked David, who did I ask to build me a house of cedar? And then we find, and then have a look at verse 7. Moreover, the Lord declares to you, the Lord will make you your own house, make you a house. So David's desire to build God, God a house gets turned around. In this context, what, what God's promising David is a dynasty. From David will come the kings and even the king. Now, verses 12 to 16 of chapter 7, Dale Ralph Davies calls these the heart and the soul of the Davidic covenant. He calls these Yahweh's indefectible promises to David. Indefectible, meaning without defect, unable to fail or end. And so in 12 to 16, Davies says these are indefectible because in 12 to 13, death does not annul it. 14 to 15, sin cannot destroy it. And in verse 16, time will not exhaust it. So let's have a quick look at these verses. 12 to 13. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. He shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build for me, he shall build a house for my name and I will establish his throne for the throne of his kingdom forever. Although David will die, his lineage, his dynasty will continue. And even though David is not to build the Lord's house, his son will. Verses 14 to 15. I will be to him a father, he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took from Saul, whom I put away from before you. When the king commits iniquity, when he does wrong, when he sins, <coughs> excuse me, God, God will discipline and punish him. We know what happened. The majority of the following kings were quite unworthy. They were idolatrous and sinful. But sin will not cancel out God's promise. David's lineage will continue and will not cease as what happened with Saul. And then lastly, this great promise in verse 16. And your house, your kingdom shall be made sure forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Notice that forever is mentioned twice here and once in verse 13. This is God's promise to David. Dale Ralph Davies points out the strength of this statement, the sheer inevitability of this promise. Um, this is simply unstoppable. The Lord will overwhelm death and sin and time to bring this about. So David's kingdom, David's throne, his, his, his lineage will be established forever. Now, we do see these promises fulfilled somewhat. Um, uh, we've got David for a start, and then you've got Solomon, who does build a house for his people, house for the Lord, sorry. He does build a house for the Lord, the temple. And also, we see the results of the sins of Solomon and his sons, the following line of kings, when the Lord and the Lord's punishment for all those sins. If you remember your Old Testament history, 
most of the kings fail to live up to what they should have been. With a few exceptions, the kings of, of Judah and Israel were idolatrous. They oppressed their own people. They abandoned God's law. God's promise of a ruler in David's line, one who would crush the head of the serpent, seems in doubt. These ongoing failures of the ongoing failures of those in David's line, the kings be, the kings become the focus of the prophetic books. The Lord calls prophet after prophet to warn the kings and the people to repent, to turn back to the Lord, but far too often these these calls fall on deaf ears. The prophet Micah is no different. Micah prophesies about the same time as Hosea and Isaiah and during the reigns of kings Jotham, Ahaz and Hezekiah. He speaks against both Israel and Judah and he announces the punishment for their continued oppression and injustice. Women and children are the victims. They make themselves rich while exploiting the poor. They detest justice and make crooked all that is straight. And yet through all this, the rulers arrogantly say that the Lord is among us. No disaster shall come upon us. But Micah tells them, no, they will be destroyed. And yet, chapter 4 talks about a remnant of the people being saved. And then what we're up to here is chapter 5. Now, verse 1. Now, muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. In verse 1 here, Israel's under siege. And while it says Israel, I gather the reference here, it is talking about Jerusalem. So the daughter of troops seems to mean that they're unable to muster a proper army. And to strike on the cheek is a metaphor for humiliation. The king is so defenceless, so powerless, that he's unable to even protect his own face. First two starts with a but. There's a contrast here. A contrast between the weak, between the weak ruler struck on the cheek and the one Micah is about to discuss. So verse 2, if you have your Bibles there. <clears throat> but you, O Bethlehem Ephathra, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be the ruler of Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. So while Israel is under siege, Micah references back to Bethlehem. Ephathra, hard to say, is likely the district, simply the district where Bethlehem is located. Um, a while ago, I preached from Isaiah 11, if you remember. And uh, leading up to, to chapter 11 in Isaiah was talk of Israel and Judah being felled, being cut down like a forest of trees. But in Isaiah 11, there's a reference to a stump, a shoot of Jesse. And if you remember, by going back to Jesse, we see not just another king in the line of David, but a new David. It was going back to the beginning of the promised line and in effect starting again. And so Micah, by going back to Bethlehem, this is in effect doing the same thing. Bethlehem is the birthplace of David and of Jesse, his father. And so we are in effect going back to the beginning. So this text reminds us that Bethlehem is a small and insignificant place. As David was least among his brothers, so Bethlehem is the least in Judah. Um, there are a few passages that mention Judah in the Old Testament. Some places are simply listed as, as one of the towns in an area. Ruth's family originate from Bethlehem. But the only truly notable thing about Bethlehem is that this is where David, where the great King David, come from. 
And so from Bethlehem will come the promised ruler over Israel who has been prophesied about. And then notice the for me. Here will be he will be for the Lord to serve him and to serve his plans. So this ruler is for me, for the Lord. From ancient of days, depending on your translation, you may have from everlasting or even from eternity. So the ruler, the Messiah, the anointed one, this one here, will be born in Bethlehem. Uh, verse 3. Therefore he shall give them up. And we'll look at verse 3. Sorry, should have had a bit of a break there. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labour has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. He shall give them up. God will give up Jerusalem she will, and, and Israel. Uh, she will be without a king. From our vantage point, we know Micah was looking forward to Jerusalem and Israel being conquered and the people um, either destroyed or sent off into exile. But this is not forever. After all, as we have seen, God has his promises to keep. Until the time, so this is temporary, until the time when she who is in labour gives birth. This is, the, this is a direct prophecy to the birth of a new king and does in fact relate back to Genesis 3.15. Uh, here, here we're talking about the offspring of the woman who will bruise the head of the serpent and reverse the curse of the fall. So his birth. Uh, we're talking about the humanity of this ruler. He's born. He's a human being. Um, but also in verse 2, that, that phrase, ancient of days from everlasting, Joel Beakey points out that this phrase requires his deity, that his coming from Bethlehem is not the beginning of his existence. He will be born in Bethlehem like a new King David, but he existed from before then, from the everlasting. This text also looks forward to the fulfilment of this prophecy. When this happens, then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. Now the brothers here are not about those who are physically related to Israel. It is about those who are his spiritual brothers and sisters. And he shall stand, in verse 4, and he shall stand and the shepherd of his flock in this, and he shall stand and the shepherd. Start that again. If I remember, I'll edit this out, but I probably could get. Verse 4. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in, his, in the majesty of his name, the Lord his God. He shall stand simply means he will endure forever. And to shepherd the flock, like a good shepherd, he will lead, feed and protect them. He will supply all their needs, both physical and spiritual. And unlike the unfaithful and sinful kings of the past, he will do this in the majesty and the strength of the name of the Lord God. And then continuing in verse 4 and then 5. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Unlike King David who ruled Israel, this king, the Messiah, shall reign until the ends of the earth, and his people shall be secure, and he shall be, this, and he shall be their peace. Given the context, this ruler will reign over all the earth and will bring everlasting peace. So our ongoing question is still, who is this person? Who is this person who will bruise the serpent's head and end the curse of the fall? Um, yeah, so who, who is the hope of the fulfilment of this prophecy? And then Matthew, if you remember, Matthew goes on to quote Micah 
to quote these texts. So have a flick to Matthew chapter 2 and we'll have a look there. So Matthew chapter 2 and beginning at verse 1. Excuse me. Now after, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, uh, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we, saw, for we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard of this, he was troubled and all the people of Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written. And you, O Bethlehem in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now Matthew doesn't go into any details of Jesus' birth, but simply states that it has occurred. He gives a place, which is Bethlehem, and the time period, which is in the days of Judah. And the Magi come to visit him. And notice there's no actually mention of a number here. It's just simply in plural. So we, all we know is that there are at least two, and you know probably many more. Um, but... There's at least two of them. That's all we know about them. Uh, now, magi or wise men, they're most likely magicians or astrologers, possibly pagan priests or philosophers. But uh, throughout the Bible, um, magicians, astrologers, um, all these sorts of people, uh, where God's people are to refrain from using them, from having any contact with them. Why? Because as God's people, we have the word of God, which is far more um true than anything these people most often charlatans ever could offer us but whatever the star was that they saw whether it's a, a astrological sign a supernova or a miracle come they did and notice that these men come from the east i don't know how much weight we can put into this but the assyrians who destroyed israel and her king they came from the east the babylonians who conquered and carted off judah and her king, um, they came from the east. And now wise men from the east, they are coming to Jerusalem to worship the king. So that's just interesting. I don't know if there's a lot we can put on that, but that's just an interesting little thing to think about. Now, some some of the context, some com commentators say that in the context, they are here to bow and pay homage to an earthly king, but not necessarily God. But uh, as, as Charles Spurgeon points out, if they came to pay homage to just another earthly king, why did they not pay homage to Herod? Instead, they came for this king of the Jews. You know, the Jews, who even at this time were viewed with contempt by some of the surrounding nations. So the Magi, they travel to Jerusalem and inquire, where is this king of the Jews? Not the one who will be king, but the one born king. And so Herod hears of this. There are seven Herods mentioned in the Bible. This one is the first and the father of them all. At this stage in his life, he's suffering paranoia, and history tells us that he even has his favourite wife and at least two of his sons killed, worrying that they had plots against him. <clears throat> and so to hear there's another king being announced, he's, he's troubled. And he hears Micah's prophecy, and the connections with the house of David is revealed. So perhaps this is a genuine contender for his throne. So of course... Herod's troubled. But why, in the text, 
is all Jerusalem worried with him. Now the all here is most likely really just talking about the priests and scribes. And it's likely that a contender from Herod's throne constituted a threat and therefore trouble for Jerusalem. And also with their influence and standing with Herod. Now Herod and the Jews and, and uh, the scribes and the, and the Pharisees, they, they never got on. Um, it was always this thing between them. Um, but anyway, this, this contender comes along and, he's, and they're troubled because he's a threat to the standing order. Um, but notice, this is interesting, there's another contrast here. The Magi from the East, aliens to the promise, Gentiles, they see the signs and travel a long distance to come looking for this king. They stop at Jerusalem for, for further details and then go on and find him and worship him. But the people of Jerusalem, the people who should have been expecting this king, they're caught out unawares and are troubled that this might be happening. Uh, their trouble and their disbelief was not due to their ignorance. To quote Don Carson, The Magi will be like the men of Nineveh, who rise up in judgment and, and condemn those who, despite their privilege of much greater light, did not receive the promised Messiah and bow to his reign. The priests and the scribes, they hear what the wise men have to say. They see the prophecy that it is written. And yet it seems that none of them sought him out. None thought to make further inquiries. The truth and hope was there right in front of them. But it seems that they were focused on earthly concerns, not on the possibility of the Christ being born. And so the priests and the scribes, yep, they look up the ancient texts and they find Micah's prophecy and read that from Bethlehem will come a ruler, one who will shepherd his people. So as mentioned before, this back to Bethlehem, this, this return to the birthplace of David, this is not just a new King David, but this is like a reset. This is going back to the beginning. David's line started full of promise, and the one to bruise the serpent's head and end the curse of the fall is waited for. But his sons and heirs quickly became unfaithful and corrupt, and so the promise seems to falter. So going back to Bethlehem signals that this is the true son and the true heir of David. This is the one the wise men should seek. To quote Bruce Walkie, the kings born in proud Jerusalem failed. The Messiah incarnated in lowly Bethlehem triumphs. This is a promise we are looking forward to. And that, my brothers and sisters, is what we will hear about next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you are indeed a great and good God. Um, we do thank you for your blessings and we thank you that the, we can see your promises unfolding through scripture. Um, the curse of the fall, we, as we know now, has indeed been lifted and um, yeah, we can all look forward to that day uh, of ultimate triumph and ultimate hope and promise when we're all joined together uh, with you as our Father in heaven, Lord. And so we pray, continue to bless us and we pray that certainly... Uh, next week we are indeed able to meet together again. In Jesus' name, Amen.